Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week, Alexander Chi on his essay collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, and his debut autobiographical novel, Edinburgh. Alexander Chi is the best-selling author of the novels The Queen of the Night and Edinburgh, contributing editor at The New Republic, an editor-at-large at the Virginia Quarterly Review, and a critic-at-large at the Los Angeles Times. His work has appeared in the Best American Essays of 2016, The New York Times Magazine, Slate, Guernica, and Tin House, among others, and is currently an Associate Professor of English at Dartmouth College. And what we're going to be talking about in the main tonight is how to write an autobiographical novel, Alex's collection of essays. Alex, welcome to Little Atoms. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. So I've just described how to write an autobiographical novel as a collection of essays, which is what it is. But how would you describe that collection? Thematically? Yeah. I would say, you know, they're essays drawn from the past 25 years, and they cover a range of subjects, but they are approximately... The story of how I went from being a reader to a writer uh, to a teacher of writing, roughly, and uh, the experiences that uh, shaped me as a writer. So, as you mentioned, they've been you know collected over roughly twenty-five years, written over roughly twenty-five years, and I know a number of them have gone through revisions in the you know in the compilation of of this collection the first essay the curse which is about a um an exchange trip you took to mexico as a youth is one that i understand has been um quite rewritten how does that how does that sort of process work of of collecting those essays from that have been written in the past and i guess obviously reflecting on them at an older age well, the curse actually uh, is interesting to me because it was a short story uh, when it was first published. And then I, and I don't really know what exactly prompted this. I just, I suppose I was going through the things I had published and thinking about them in a sort of evaluative way because I was also doing my tenure case, which is its own sort of evaluative process for your, <laughs> for your entire career. And is a, a very intense uh, self-portrait of a kind. So I came across it, and then I thought, I didn't really like it as a story. But I really loved the experiences inside of it. And so I, I made the decision to uh, to go back in and conduct a kind of, I guess it's like deboning a fish. 
you know, just pulling out all the things that that I wanted to keep and throwing away what I had made up around it, which uh, just wasn't it just wasn't as good. And I'm actually I'm quite happy with the essay now. I think it works as an essay much better than it did as a short story. And also, it's, a, it's an interesting one to start with because it does the reverse of what you what we're going to talk about later on in the book, which is about turning autobiographical elements into fiction. Right, and I think it's also, you know, I wanted to I wanted to think back to when I first started to write for pleasure. The question of like how one becomes a writer why one becomes a writer it's a pretty constant almost average question it's it's almost ridiculous to ask in some ways because uh, because it is so common and yet it is always interesting to people and i realized i I would talk a lot about the events that are in the annie dillard essay in the collection where i where i was studying with her and you know i tell the story of how i wrote my first short story to get into her class but I was, when I thought about it, I realized I was writing, I was writing these these X Men fan fiction stories, essentially to pass my time while I was on that exchange program, and really enjoying the process of doing it, enjoying the writing of it, which is something that I think can get a little lost in this discussion of when did you start writing. In some ways, it's you know it's almost more interesting, I think, to to think about when did you first start enjoying writing. And the essay you mentioned, um, the Annie Dillard essay, is about you know your time at Wesleyan, studying uh, writing, studying um, particularly um, literary nonfiction under her. And you mentioned you know the idea of like you know a common question: when did you start writing? You know why do you write? But a lesson that comes out of that essay is, I guess, why do you stick with writing? How do you stick with writing? Right, and that's the kind of that's the kind of thing that I, I like about essays and about writing in general is, is ending up somewhere that you didn't expect to in the process. I think her early warnings to us about the importance of stamina <laughs> have only become more true over time, you know. And, you know, in particular, for those who, haven't, who are listening who haven't read it yet, the, the warning she gives us is approximately, I was in classes with people who were more talented than me. And they're not writing anymore. I'm still writing because I'm still writing, you know. And uh, it took me years of teaching and seeing talented students who I expected to go somewhere and then would go nowhere. And then seeing students who, who I thought were pretty good develop into like extraordinary writers through force of will, essentially. Um, it took all of that for me to realize that talent was just a way to kind of skip over some of the things that other people had to teach themselves like you could do something quickly that other people had to struggle to perfect and that it wasn't any particular it wasn't necessarily a sign because the person who was talented might just ignore their ability to do that so easily because it was easy to them and what they were looking for was a struggle and indeed this is an essay that was i mean this is a a class that you took in the when the early 90s i mean this is before late 80s even late yeah. 80s i mean this is way before you know the internet the complete collapse of you know a, a, a sensible financial structure for for writing whether that be journalism or you know advances for novelists or whatever nowadays it's it's even harder to to stick at it i think i try not to be too desperate about it all <laughs> um but you're right you know, I think the uh, the thing that was 
really shocking to watch happen over the past two decades is the income destruction in both teaching and writing. So that these two processes that were, or two jobs or vocations, if you will, that used to provide a, a good living for a lot of people have been under assault pretty steadily. You know, when I first moved to New York in the early 90s, it was very common to meet people who supported themselves entirely by writing and who made a good living doing it. And now I was on a panel recently with a bunch of writers, most of whom were at least 10 to 15 years younger than me. And to them, it was it was an entirely exotic, even possibly imaginary possibility. So it was it was interesting. You know, Annie was always very clear, though, about how precarious it was, even in the late 80s, she said to us, you know, only a few of us get to only write. Most of us have to do something else. Later on, you also become an alumni of the um, the infamous Iowa Writer Program, and you talk about that in the book. Tell us something about that course. <laughs> well, you know, as I uh, as I say in the in the essay in the collection, it was something that I used to. The workshop was something that I used to make fun of before I got in and before I went, and so of course I look like <laughs> a very compromised kind of cynic, which uh, makes me perhaps its own special kind of cynic as a result in the aftermath. But, you know, it was a, it was a great experience for me. It's a, it's a program whose legacy is so long now that it has different eras. And I can talk about my experience there, and it will have very little relationship to the experience that people are having there right now, you know. Although it's true that the director of the program now was a classmate of mine when I was there in the 90s, early 90s, Sam Chang. Your debut novel, Edinburgh, which um, came out in the US in, in 2001, is, is also just being published for the first time in, in the UK at the same time as uh, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel. And you talk about, we'll talk in a moment, about some of the writing process of that novel in the essay collection. Um, just remind us before we do what the novel is about. So the novel is not about Scotland. <laughs> well, tell us, you do talk about um, where, the, where the title came from. Yeah, I think, the, I mean, the whole story of where the title came from is like, I was trying to write this autobiographical novel, as I talk about later on in the in the collection. Uh, and it is, it was a very different novel. And the Edinburgh that is published and the Edinburgh that is in my manuscript files, um, they do have a relationship. Um, but the first draft of the novel was about someone like myself who, you know, was thinking about how... He had these two very different families, one Korean, one uh, Scotch-Irish-American, and the sort of push and pull between them culturally and how the only thing that he could imagine for his education that would satisfy both of him, both of them, was if he went to the University of Edinburgh, um, which, you know, at the time, my grandfather thought was like, my Korean grandfather thought it was the finest place in the world to study literature, and uh, I don't know why he had that opinion. He was a... You know, he's a former diplomat and former minister of fisheries in, uh, in Korea. He knew he was a worldly man. He knew a lot of these things. Um, is it is that a reputation that you would put with uh, the University of Edinburgh? I mean, obviously example? not above Oxbridge or even <laughs> probably like, not. You know, the, the comparison to the Iowa program over here would probably be like the um, University of East Anglia's creative writing. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. So it's so I do think there is something peculiar about his affection for the University of Edinburgh it's that I was never city. able to discuss with him. You know, like yeah, it's a beautiful city. 
Um, and my mother, you know, she she's very proud of her Scottish heritage. And so she also would be very happy if I was there. And that was that was something that I was playing around with in the novel. None of that stayed in the book, but the title stayed. And the title eventually came to refer to this part of the city of Edinburgh where so many people died during the Black Plague that rather than remove them to bury them, they simply buried the neighborhood. And it's still a little hollow underneath. And it was something that was introduced to me in the, I guess it was, it was 1990 when I went to that city for the first time. And I was in a gay and lesbian cafe in Edinburgh, and I met a journalist and a, a Tory MP um, who took a liking to me and decided to take me on a car tour of the city and just show me around. And there was nothing, there was nothing illicit in it. It was really quite kind of them to do so. And this was one of the things that they told me about. And it just, it stayed in my imagination. It was such a powerful thing to learn. I think we also saw the the house where the prime of Miss Jean Brody was filmed. It was a it was a very gay car tour. <laughs> <laughs> so that's what the novel is not about. That's what the novel is not about. Um, but that that relationship to the past, however, where you bury something instead of taking it out and fully fully dealing with it, that is essentially the metaphor, is where the title comes from, and and that's in the that's in the novel. Um, the novel is about it's about the legacy of sexual abuse, essentially in the life of a young Korean American man who, while he was growing up in Maine, he was in a boys' choir, uh, professional boys' choir, and the director uh, would eventually be charged with 15 counts of child sexual abuse, and he is he's one of them, and you know he's ashamed of his silence once everything comes out and he doesn't understand it either. And he wants to understand why he said nothing, why he allowed everything to happen. There's elements in this book that are autobiographical and you talk in the essay collection about the process of how the book became that, you know, how you finally sort of felt equipped to sort of deal with that. And, you know, the book went through this, you know, was once a very different novel um, became the novel it was. Also, you talk in the book particularly about the use of plots and the use of, you know, finding a, a myth, I guess, looking at sort of classical literature, but then eventually coming up with a plot that's from a opera as a means of dealing with writing about that personal subject matter. A Scottish opera, for that matter, in a way. <laughs> or an opera set in Scotland, actually. Italian opera. But, uh, Lucita Lammermoor. Yes, uh... So, you know, I, I know that that description of the novel doesn't exactly sell it to people. Um, <laughs> but I was trying very hard to think about something that in my own life, you know, something like this had happened to me. And I remember when my choir director, as it were, not the fictional one, um, when he was being sentenced, he, he brought up that he himself had been a victim of abuse as a way of asking for lenient sentencing. And I was really shocked by that. And, and angered, you know, like, I didn't understand how that could happen. And so that, that piece of it in particular, I think, is part of why it stayed in my mind. It was like this coal that just kind of kept pushing at me when I would think about it. It seemed uh, just impossibly cruel. And so in some ways, I wrote the novel as an, a way to understand the cruelty that I felt was there in the 
and also the humanity of that person. Even as I was also trying to write about something that I felt like I didn't see in books about sexual abuse, which was the rage, just the very real anger and how self-destructive that could be. Your second novel, Queen of the Nights, looks on the surface to be a departure. It's, it's fundamentally a historical novel, but it's also a novel about identity, about reinvention of your own identity repeatedly. Again, themes that crop up throughout this collection of essays. Yes, I think the you know there was an opera singer. Char- there's an opera singer character in Edinburgh. She's a minor character. Uh, the main character is is in a production of Tosca. And he's uh, completely uh, taken with the woman who is singing the lead role in that novel. And she, she sort of, she took the novel over for a while. And I, I remember I cut those pages out of the manuscript and I, I said to the character, you know, you'll get your own book someday, um, sort of as a joke. And then I ended up writing this novel about an opera singer set in Second Empire France who believes her voice is cursed and that it dooms her to repeat the fates of... Uh, the roles that she performs and it's a it's a kind of a uncanny uh, celebrity autobiography from the 19th century where the singer is telling you stories about herself and telling you stories about the famous people that she knew back then which was how those celebrities would underline their own importance and I read a lot of them as a way of trying to get at the style that I was after. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. 
You're listening to Little Atoms, I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Alexander Chi. We're talking about, in the main, his essay collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, and also his, what was his debut novel, Edinburgh. And Alex, in a, um, I guess, an act of serendipity, that if I'd read it in a novel, I probably would have thought it was was too far-fetched. While I've been (laughs) reading this collection of essays, George Bush has died, and... um, (laughs) Inevitably, as happens, you know, at the moment with the present incumbent, there's been a lot of talk about, you know, how different his style was. I just thought I'd ask you to to comment on that. Comment on the death of George Bush? Yeah, for reasons that will become apparent. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. I mean, I think you and I know why, but um, it's it's an interesting time to... To see how the press is struggling to deal with his legacy, which, you know, is at best a mixed one. Um, But the the way in which there's a need that the the mainstream press seems to have to to sort of show him in only his best light, that I think is troubling to a lot of us who lived through those days. Whether you protested his policies on AIDS or his embrace of evangelicals to get elected and the mainstreaming of the Christian right politically. He is the one who essentially activated them to get elected. Uh, The intense racism that he deployed against John McCain in the campaign, as well as against Dukakis, the Willie Horton ad is really famous. You know, he also embraced Lee Atwater as a part of getting elected. And Lee Atwater, for people who don't know this about American politics, is a... He was a a political strategist who essentially is the architect for the contemporary political moment that we're in now. So a lot of these seeds were sown by him and by the the methods that he brought to bear in getting elected. And, you know, it's it's difficult to see people say that he was the the kinder, gentler conservative to hear them go on about uh, white Anglo-Saxon Protestant noblesse oblige when uh, we know that he was in fact a ruthless and cunning uh, man who would seem to have had no particular principle guiding him except a will to power. And so in that case, he's not very different from Donald Trump at all. And indeed, a number of essays in this book are set during that time period. Uh, The one entitled 1989 in particular, there's a a really beautiful um, essay about the the painter Peter Calloran. Take us back to San Francisco at that time when AIDS was basically about to destroy an entire generation of people. Um, You were active in ACT UP, the, the activist group for a while indeed took it took part in a dying at Kenny Bunkport which was a George H.W. Bush's you know his, his summer home in in Maine tell us something about those act up days you know they were as I say in the collection it felt like the end of the world you know and I remember I remember back then we were trying to get Americans concerned about how many people did not have health insurance and how healthcare for profit was going to be something that everyone would come to regret it was the change had just occurred in the way healthcare was being dealt with, and all these not-for-profit uh, organizations had been turned into organizations for profit, like Blue Shield, which is one of the biggest insurers in the United States. And drug companies were aware of the profits that they could make, and you know, at first, AIDS was not 
significant to them as a disease because not enough people had it for them to get interested in researching the drugs. And it's almost as if, at the most diabolical, what it looks like is it's almost as if they were waiting for enough people to have it before they got involved. And we still don't have a cure. You know, back then, the time that I'm writing about, you know, it was a time when we did a demonstration trying to emphasize how many people had died in San Francisco. And we underlined the number 6,000 dead in the city as a, a way of like trying to communicate the feeling of a natural disaster. And, you know, that number looks so small now to think of how many were lost. A number of essays in the book also touch on your, you know, your Korean-American background. And indeed, as, as you've already mentioned, um, mixed background. I spoke to R.O. Kwan a couple of weeks ago, and hmm. we talked about now, the, the situation now for Korean-American and you know, Asian-American writers on a wider basis. And she obviously mentioned yourself as being one of the sort of hmm. pioneers, and, and indeed you talk, in the, you talk in the book about an incident where one of your teachers actually says, you know, if you get your novel out quickly, you could be the, the first Korean-American writer. <laughs> and even at that, you know, that late stage, that seems like quite an, in, an incredible idea that you would have been. Tell me something about those, those first days... I was the only Asian American person in pretty much all of my writing classes in those times that I speak of. And she was wrong that Young Hill Kang is the first uh, Korean American novelist. Um, he had written and published his novels in the, in the 30s, first Korean American to win a, a Guggenheim, and, and then he won another one. But... I did not know about him. And part of the reason why I didn't know about him, I think, is part of what I'm trying to get at in the collection, which is like, you know, as I'm educating myself as a writer, what I'm also learning is the ways in which writers like me were always being uh, erased from the culture's memory for one reason or another. And then in the middle of that, trying to figure out how do I how do I make work? How do I commit to this life and how do I make sure that that doesn't happen to my own legacy just one more question then the final sure. essay in this collection talks about being a just published debut author just as 9-11 happens um, obviously you know various <laughs> things have gone on since then various wars yes. right up to now the present day with um, with again with Donald Trump sitting in the White House the question has to be asked why do we bother <laughs> why do we bother with why, writing? Yeah, why do you write now? Yeah, I mean, What's the I point? think it's been a pretty amazing year for me of having that validated for myself, where I have been going around the country meeting all these uh, meeting all these writers, young Asian American, young queer writers, who have found so much in the book, which has been really gratifying for me. And, you know, while I wasn't the first... American novelist. I am the first uh, Korean American gay novelist, and there are still not that many, not that many Korean queer writers either. I think you know when I think about why we do it, we do it to make ourselves more human to each other. You know, to help each other understand these things and and come into a kind of deeper sense of ourselves and uh, the world and. You know, I'm thinking of like a, a time when one of the stories that I tell in the collection is about how I received a, a set of postcards 
from a friend who had sent my first novel to a man in prison who had been convicted of pedophilia and uh, how he had read the novel over a period of four days as he describes in the messages and and he he said it was the first thing that had ever showed him how what he did was wrong and that really blew my mind but it told me that i was doing the right thing you know that i could that i could reach somebody who was so so far from what i thought of as an audience someone who i i thought would avoid the novel because of what it was about um that I could reach him and and bring him that kind of inner transformation, that's the only reason you need, right? I've been talking to Alexander Chi. We've been talking about his essay collection, How to Write an Autobiographical Novel, which along with his what was his debut novel, Edinburgh, both are out in the UK now from Bloomsbury. Alex, thank you so much for taking the time to tell me about it. You're very welcome. Thank you for having me on the show. I really appreciate it. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up, and the podcast is hosted by Acast. Find us on iTunes, and if you like the show, please do leave us a review. You can find old interviews, new journalism and more on our website, littleatoms.com. Thanks for listening.